All right, um, so uh, if you were here two weeks ago, you will remember uh, that the day before that sermon, Kentucky played Tennessee, and uh, I used it as an illustration, and I forgot that we had to play them again uh, in two weeks, and so I was asked this morning, uh, so you're going to talk about the game this week? And um, so what I told Mark is, you know, I have a lot to say in this sermon. Um, it's, it's longer than my normal one, so I don't have really, really have time for an opening illustration. So we're just going to go straight into it this morning, um, and, and, and that's okay with you. We, we do play again in two weeks, and depending on the outcome of that one, we might, we might show up again in a sermon. We'll see. But for this week, let's just go to work with the text, shall we? Here's what's going on in Acts. Um, the first five verses that we looked at last week are the prologue of the entire book. And then the verses that we're looking at now are kind of the crossover with, with Luke. Luke, as we talked about last week, Acts is the second volume uh, to the Gospel of Luke. And it ends with the ascension. And Acts, the story of Acts picks back up with the ascension, filling in some details, okay? So this is the one section that's kind of a little bit of a crossover with the first volume in Luke. And what, what we're going to see today is a tension. A tension between the expe- expectations of the disciples for what they want from Jesus and the expectation of Jesus for what he wants from the disciples. And it's that Tension, that final tension that literally sets the scene for the entire book of Acts, and I would go as far as to say the entirety of church history and the advancement of the gospel. I'm going to break it down in two ways. Here are my two points that we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at our concern for our world, and then we're going to look at God's concern for his world. And that will make sense when we get to it. But let's start with our concern, the disciples' concern for their world. Verse 6. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's kingdom language. We talked about that last week extensively. I explained the kingdom of God. So I'm not going to review that this morning, especially because even though the word kingdom is there, this is not, the kingdom of God is not necessarily what the disciples are about here. It's easy to make uh, that mistake and think that this is just talking about the kingdom of God, but there's something uh, deeper going on, a cultural thing going on. Last week, that we were, we were told that Jesus spent the 40 days of his resurrection leading up to this moment, to his ascension, teaching about the kingdom of God. But notice the way the disciples word the kingdom talk here. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Restore the kingdom to Israel. Now that question represents a common At that time, a very common yet exceedingly flawed understanding of the notion of the kingdom. Jews were certainly familiar with the language of the kingdom of God, very much so. But they believed that the kingdom of God was the same as the kingdom of Israel. Now, technically, that's not incorrect. 
The story of the kingdom of God is unveiled and flows out of the story of Israel, as we talked about last week. And the Messiah of Israel is the king of the kingdom of God. And of course, this Messiah, this king came from Israel. So it's not surprising, nor necessarily wrong, I would say, that Jews in that time equated the kingdom of God to the kingdom of Israel. But the problem was, was how they viewed the kingdom of Israel. From the very beginning, when this whole story of Israel started, it was told that the entire point of the nation was to bless all the other nations. That is to say that the, the kingdom of Israel was to be the ambassadors of the kingdom of God to all the earth. But, if you're familiar with the story, Israel failed miserably at that. They turned their calling inward. They wrongly assumed God's blessings were for them, not the world. That their chosen status meant that God was concerned for their purposes rather than that they were chosen for God's purposes. And so instead of loving the nations... They looked down upon the nations. Instead of reaching other nations, they wanted to rule and dominate other nations. Instead of blessing the world, they expected the world to bless them. Which is why they had such a hard time with the king when he actually arrived. Because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to come and and vindicate the kingdom of Israel, to, to liberate Israel from its long history of defeat and persecution and oppression at the hands of other kingdoms, lesser kingdoms that they thought they should be ruling over. And now, like in this context, the Roman, the pagan Roman kingdom was ruling over them and they thought the Messiah would come and defeat their enemies and give Israel its rightful place as the reigning kingdom of this world. But he did the opposite. He announced that his arrival was the arrival of the kingdom indeed. But when you look at his kingdom's arrival, it included those that Israel excluded. It blessed those that Israel cursed. It loved those that Israel hated. And it saved those that Israel wanted defeated. And then most shocking of all, the king that Israel expected to to defeat their oppressor was crucified by their oppressor. They did not know what to do with this man who was supposed to be their king and defeat their enemies and their enemies killed their king. But in a twist that nobody saw coming, their king rises from the dead. And so what happens in that moment, especially as in those days of resurrection, he goes around talking about the kingdom. What happens in the resurrection is it stirs, it rekindles this frenzy of hope. That, oh, now we get the plan. They thought thought that they killed us, but you came back and now... Now you will be victorious. Now you will give us what we want, which is to rule and reign over all the nations of the world. And then he takes them to the Mount of Olives, which I'm not going to take the time to explain how significant that is. But you just need to know that that is a historic location of Israel's hope for victory 
And now look at what the disciples say and see if you can understand what they're saying. He takes them there. He's risen. He's talking all about this kingdom stuff. And they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They are wanting and hoping that Jesus will finally meet their expectations. And Jesus is about to once and for all shatter those expectations and redefine the kingdom. But before we get to his response to them, I do think we need to pause and humbly see ourselves in their story. What Israel did is what we all do. Self-obsess over our own world, our own wants, our own purposes, our own expectations, our own dreams, and then wrongly view the purposes of God through that lens. That is to say, we expect, dare I say in our worst moments, we demand that God give us the world that we want. And when he inevitably doesn't, we are disappointed with God at best and perhaps angry at God at worst. For example, if you want to see yourself in the life of Israel, consider your prayer life. If God were to answer your prayers, what would happen in the world? Would the lost be saved? Would enemies be blessed? Would the nations be reached? Would the persecuted be comforted? Would the poor be fed? Would the orphaned find homes? Would slaves, modern day slavery, would slaves be liberated? Would the opioid crisis be over? Would abortion be over? Would pornography be over? Would racism be over? Would wars be over? Or would your life just get better? Would your little world just get better? Would you and your little kingdom be blessed? Or would the bluegrass and the nations be blessed? I think if we are honest with ourselves, we are too familiar with Israel's failure. Too often our prayers are not the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Shamefully it is my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in my own obsession. Here's the problem. God will not conform his purposes to yours or to mine. He will not bring your kingdom. He will bring his And so he shatters our expectations. He does not act according to our plans and leaves us internally screaming that all too familiar line, what in the world is God doing? To which the answer is, whose world? My tiny little self-obsessed world or his world? I could tell you what he's doing in his world. His kingdom is coming. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's doing in this world. And he is willing to mess with your world to bless his world. Now let's watch him do that with the disciples. We've seen our concern for our world. Let's look at his concern 
for his world. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you give us what we want? Jesus answers his disciples with a mild, gracious, but it's a rebuke. And it's a two-part rebuke. And I'll sum it up for you here. Here's what he essentially says to them. None of your business. Now make your business my business. First, look at verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That is Jesus' very gentle way of saying, it's none of your business. He says, this knowledge doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. When will the world be right? I don't owe you that information. And you're just going to have to be okay with that. We talked a lot about this in our series in the upper room. Where when it comes to Jesus, you're just going to have to give up control and clarity. When will it finally be right? How long, O Lord, the Psalms cry. And he says, you can't know. It's not for you to know. But notice how even here, he is repositioning the worldview of his disciples. He could have easily said, it's not for you to know the times or the season. It's none of your business, let's move on. But instead, he adds to it, it's not for you to know the times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He reminds them of God's sovereignty over all things. You see... We are concerned over what we have control over, i.e. our little world. But Jesus is reminding them that God has control over all things and is therefore concerned with all things. Yes, you, as a tiny part of all things. He is enlarging their vision of God's sovereignty, saying it's none of your business what God is doing with his control over all things. And then he gives them the famous Acts 1-8, which is actually, it, 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 it is a command. It is, it is like Will said, it's a, it's, a, it's a command to go, but it's also, it, it is a little bit of a rebuke. He's changing their perspective. He gives them the famous 1-8. This is the thesis of the entire book of Acts. One could argue this is the thesis for the entirety of church history as we know it and the spread of the gospel his final words on earth before he leads, before he leaves, words that still echo over all of us to this very day. Last word. Will you at time, this time restore the kingdom? None of your business. Instead, but, so in contrast, here's my answer. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now lay aside the you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. Because we will discuss that at length when it actually happens here next chapter. When the Spirit actually comes in power. We'll talk about that. What I want to emphasize this week is the purpose of that power. You see he gives them the power. That they want so desperately, but the purpose of that power is not what they want. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are you finally going to loose the power we know that you have and defeat our enemies and give us the world we want? Finally, Jesus, will you let this power go and fix our world? Jesus says, Oh, you'll see my power. 
In fact, it's even better. You'll have my power. But for what purpose? Not for me to give you the world you want, but for you to give me the world I want. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, indeed to the ends of the earth. You will have my power to fix the world. If you have ever studied Acts, then you know uh, what Jesus is doing here is he's expanding the world as they know it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, they're comfortable with that. That's home. That's the bluegrass for them. Judea, that's eh, a little further out, but still familiar. Still in the state, so to speak. Samaria, now we're getting uncomfortable. Because now these are neighbors that we don't like. These are people we hate. And to the ends of the earth, now things have gotten ridiculous. You're saying, Jesus, the entire world? That's exactly what he's saying. And we will see that unfold in the book of Acts. It begins with Peter's um, ministry in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, which extends out to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12, which culminates in the conversion of Paul, who then begins missionary journeys to the Gentiles, the ends of the earth, in chapters 13 through 28. And then the last verse of the book of Acts is the very antithesis of the disciples at the beginning of Acts. Actually, let's, let's go there. Go, go, to, go to chapter 28. And so at the beginning, you got the disciples in their nationalistic Israel pride. Lord, is it time for you to give Israel the kingdom? Here at the end, Paul is in Rome, the gateway to the ends of the earth. And the book concludes this way. Look at the change in perspective. He lived there two whole, Paul lived there, that is Rome, two whole years at his own expense. Don't miss that. He is devoted to God's world at the expense of his own world, his own comfort, his own money. And he welcomed all who came to him. Again, don't miss that. Through hospitality, he is opening his world to God's world, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Not, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord. Jesus Christ. Not asking Jesus if he will restore the kingdom to Israel, but proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the world about the Lord Jesus. So we're going to watch Acts 8, 1, 8 unfold. But for our purposes here at the beginning, I think we need to ask ourselves if we are prepared for it to unfold in our own lives. We'll see the transformation of the disciples. We'll see this thing unfold. Are you ready for it to unfold in your life? Here's my question. Are you prepared to give up the world you want for the world God wants? The first point is our concern for our world. The second point is God's concern for his world Are you prepared to give up the world you want for the world God wants? Now, we need to answer that, I think, institutionally as a church. And we've done that at the conference. That was a big theme of the conference. Again and again and again, Russ said, hey, Tate's Creek, 
you do realize that you're the, you're the only institution that exists for those who are not members. So we as members have to say, are, are we willing to give up what we want here for those who are not members here? And we could talk about that as a church, and we have in the conference, but that starts with you, starts with me. Are you, are you prepared to renounce your inward obsession for God's outward obsession? Are you prepared for God to mess with your world to bless his world? When you chose to follow Jesus, that's the life you were signing up for. Your business becomes his business. Your purposes, his purposes. Your wants, his wants. And you are willingly conceding to him the right to shatter the former in order to accomplish the latter. That is to say, here's what I mean by that. If what you want must be shattered to accomplish what he wants, then you are to say, thy will be done. If your purposes for your world must come to ruin, for God's purposes in his world to come to pass, you are to say, thy will be done. Simply put, the all too familiar cry that we go to when things don't go our way in our world, what in the world is God doing will be replaced by the unfamiliar God-centered cry, what in the world am I doing for God? So are you ready? Are you prepared to give up your purposes for your world in the name of God's purposes for his world? Are you prepared to give up your purposes for your money for God's purposes for your money? Excessive spending in favor of excessive giving. Are you prepared to give up your purposes for your home in the name of God's purposes for your home? Meaning, to death with the clean, in control, comfortable, convenient home in favor of the messy, inconvenient, out of control, hospitable home. Are you prepared to give up your purposes for your time in the name of God's purposes for your time. That is a schedule around others. That is a repentance of the of slothful ways in the name of neighbor. That is room for interruption. That is room for the inconveniences of love. That is room for exhaustion in the name of neighbor love. Are you prepared to give up your purposes for God's. How about this? Are you prepared to face your fears for God's purposes? What if that what you fear the most comes to pass so that what God wants the most might come to pass? Are you prepared for that? What about singleness? You know, Paul talks about singleness in a strange way. He talks about it as a gift for the kingdom. Are you prepared to embrace the celibate single life if that is how he intends to advance his purposes in this world? What about your vocation? Are you prepared for him to mess with your job, maybe even change your job if that's what it looks like for his purposes of the world? What about where you live? We'll talked about we talked about this in, 
the pastors this week about, you know, Marshall's particularized church downtown and these other churches. Would you, would, are you prepared to sell your home and move into an area where we're trying to plant a church for his purposes? What about your fear of surrounding your health? What if, what if sickness advances the purposes of God? What if a diagnosis advances the purposes of God? What if your reputation being harmed advances the purposes of God? What about your fear of the future? How, how about your children? Their safety, their comfort, their health. Could you even say, yes, Lord, even my children, the world of my children, if it means your purposes? What if that which you fear the most comes to pass so that what God wants the most might come to pass? Listen, I know this is all very scary. Believe me, I wrote the sermon. I get it. But I want to remind you that God's purposes are always altogether right and good. And he's already proved it to you. May I remind you, Christian, that your story is like every story. God refusing to give you what you want in order to give you what he wants. What did you want? To be your own king of your own kingdom. To think what you want to think. To do what you want to do, to determine what you want to be right and to determine what you want to be wrong. To live your selfish existence as king of your own little world. And the sovereign Lord Jesus said, no. I will be your king. I will tell you what to think and to do. I will tell you what is right and wrong. I'm in charge, not you. Now question, dear Christian, which has proven better? Is not his will better than your will? His world better than your world? Do you have any regrets when it comes to Jesus, despite the fact that he cost you so much of what you thought you wanted? I have yet to meet a follower of Jesus who regrets following Jesus. Cost and all. And by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't say... To you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, clearly I'm not watering things down for you. Um, If Jesus has been presented like this to you, um, Jesus, Jesus loves you, true. Jesus can save you, will save you, true. He will enter in your life and he will make everything work out well, untrue. Jesus will mess with you if you follow him. And I just want to be, I don't want the bait and switch thing, right? I just want to be honest with you. That's what he does. He says, count the cost before you choose to follow me because it will cost you everything. And the bad news is that God will give you what you want. And the reason why I call that bad news is because whether you know it or not, what you want is not good for you. And what Jesus wants is good for you. And so there's this paradox that I offer you. Anyone who wishes to save his world will lose it. But anyone who will give up his world for Christ will gain. To all of us, we have to understand 
that he will continue to replace our concern for our world with his concern for his world, as scary as it may be, when he messes with our world to bless his world, we will find ourselves blessed by that mess. And when the day comes that the world is just how God wants it, and that day is coming, we will discover it to be exactly the world that we want. Look at verse 9. We'll close with it, the rest of the passage. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, the cloud took him out of their sight. Talk about a woe. We thought you were about to restore everything and give us the world you want. Not only did you do that, you just told us that instead we have to go reach the entire planet and now he's gone. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking to heaven? I know why. They don't know what to do. Like, what do we do? And he... and. You heard the man, get going, start in Jerusalem. But this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When this journey of witness to the ends of the earth is complete, Jesus will return from heaven, but this time bringing heaven with him. And this fallen world will finally be God's world again. And on that day and forevermore, we will know fully the truth that his world is far better than our world. Let me pray. Lord, oh, how much we need you. How can we be confronted with this call to change everything so that we are not concerned with ourselves and our purposes, but with you and your purposes to, to die to our selfishness and to live holy for you. How can we be confronted with that and not need your grace, Lord? We need it because we have fallen so short of this and we need forgiveness. We need it because we need to be strengthened for this. We need power. We need you to come. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do what you promised to do at the table and meet us here and strengthen us to this call. We believe, help our unbelief. We want to follow you, help us follow you more. We love you, increase our love. Bless us, we pray, through this table. In Jesus' name, amen.